You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. God says you can eat from any tree that you want to eat from. And Adam and Eve go to the one tree that they're not supposed to eat from. And every four-year-old said, amen. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw, everybody say saw. Man, if you look at the wrong thing too long, it starts to look right. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and very key, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam, sometimes being quiet and taking the path of least resistance, will also lead to cataclysmically terrible events. So sometimes being comfortable isn't being right. Not even to get through the texts today. So keep that in mind. Everybody say hungry. Hungry. Everybody say hangry. Don't say pizza right now. It's too early in the sermon. In Mark, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they, Jesus and his disciples, could not even. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. Say seize. They didn't go out to see if he was hungry. They went out to capture him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Calm down. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, who just shows up, they show up at Jesus' home, they were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. Karen, I told you, every time she calls me Beelzebul instead of Bill, my sister-in-law who's back from Virginia. I'm so happy you're here. I love you guys so much. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Jesus is like, my family thinks I'm crazy. The house of Israel thinks I'm evil. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. I can't even begin to tell you how amazing that is to me. I would not have spoken in parables. I wouldn't have wanted anyone to misunderstand what I wanted to say in defense of them calling me a demon and crazy. I wouldn't have spoken in parables. My wife wishes sometimes I would speak in parables. I feel like my wife always speaks in parables. We have to have a balance of this. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's what Jesus did to Satan in the wilderness. He bound the strong man and now every miracle, everything he's doing is plundering the strong man's goods because Satan's tied up. And so Jesus is now plundering his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven for the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, now anybody who has anxiety, please don't listen, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Right now, some people are like, is that me? I think I've done that. I might have done that when I was five. Is it over? We'll get there. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
And his mother and his brothers came, so they're still, so like this whole thing's happening with the Pharisees. They're calling him a demon. Jesus is speaking in parables, and then his mom and his brothers are still relentless, and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for getting us back to Sunday. For some of us, it was easy to get back here. For others, it is amazing that we are back here right now. And so we thank you that you are faithful and that even when Sunday seems hard to get to, you bring Sunday to us on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And so we pray that you would anoint this room. I pray that you make preaching easy. I pray that you make hearing your word a delight. And I pray that we are changed to be able to lift our arms up, to be able to reach out to each other. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's start with something serious, and then we'll move to a little bit more of a funny story. So Adam and Eve and Jesus in these two texts. There is the call on our life to feast. Everybody say feast. Who likes to feast? Everybody say fast. What overachieving person likes to fast? Put your hand down, Mike. Oh, that's not Mike. That's Grady. All right, overachiever, show off. Grady looks like he fasts a lot, actually. (laughs) We are supposed to be in a rhythm of feasting and fasting. And here's the problem. In the Adam and Eve story, God says there are trees that you can feast from, and then there's a tree that you're supposed to fast from. And when we meet them for the first time, they're feasting at the tree they're supposed to be fasting, which means that they're fasting the trees they're supposed to be feasting on. We have a tendency to feast on those things we should be fasting from, and consequently fast from those things that we should be feasting on. And this isn't just food. This is opinions. This is preferences. There are things that we should be fasting that we feast on because they feel good to us. There are bad things that look good, and the longer you stare at them, you start to think, maybe God is giving this to me. I need to say this, and I hope this ruffles some feathers. Adam and Eve, there's this combination of, did they make a conscious choice to sin, or did they not? And I'm going to argue that they were deceived. And I think this is very important that we know this. All through the Bible, Paul and Peter are very clear that Adam and Eve were deceived into eating the fruit. They were tricked into it because without being tricked, they wouldn't have done it. They were deceived. Peter makes it very clear. The woman was deceived first. I'm not aligning with Peter necessarily on that, ladies. Please don't hurt me. I think we all make mistakes equally, okay? Maybe not so much men, but you get my point. They were tricked bamboozled, hoodwinked, a play-action fake. They were tricked into eating it. Why? Because innately they are good, and good people wouldn't have done that, but they were deceived. Why? Because the devil or evil is always attacking our goodness, 
our goodness is always under attack. And it's trying to make bad look good and good seem bad. That is the basic kindergarten level of what's always happening. God made us perfect, but he also made us vulnerable. He made us vulnerable. We were created to be responsive beings. We were created to be image. Image responds to the original. We were not created to be original. We were created to be responsive. And so we are vulnerable to respond to God. We are vulnerable to respond to the powers of evil because God knows that truly loving people also have to be vulnerable people. So Adam and Eve were vulnerable even before they sinned, and their vulnerability was tricked into eating something they shouldn't have ate from. Now let's go visit Jesus. Jesus is called by many a glutton and a wine-bibber. Jesus knew how to party. They, John's gospel opens up with Jesus getting invited to a wedding because he's the kind of person you want to have at a party. Jesus loved to eat. Thank God. Thank God. It's my favorite part about him. The cross is cool, but thank you that you ate a lot. But when we find Jesus in this story, he's fasting. So Jesus understands the rhythm of feasting and fasting, where most of us really only understand the rhythm of feasting, like Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve feasted, on what they should have been fasting, creation breaks down forever all around them. When Jesus fasts appropriately and lives hungry when he should, he restores and rebuilds the creation around him. So just because something is a preference and just because something is good doesn't mean we should automatically totally indulge and eat our face off on that thing. Sometimes fasting something that I deserve or even fasting something I should have leaves room for somebody to have something that they don't deserve that Jesus wants them to have. You all better amen louder than these babies are talking. I'm going to leave them in the room until you are louder than the children. I think Jesus said something about this. Out of the mouth of not 45-year-olds. Interesting. So yesterday... I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just going to say this. I'm an amazing father. I am an amazing father. Right, Sophia? I take Sophia to Party City where Satan lives in Wappingers on our way home from Kohl's because my wife accidentally popped one of the balloons she got at Hudson's party. It had confetti in it. Thank you, Fragamenis. I hear, and I run into the room, and it's just like chores are just falling from the sky. So I tell Sophia I'm going to get her a balloon. So we are on our way home. We pull into Party City. Here's what I love about Party City. At the counter, they have Advil, because by the time you get to the counter at Party City, you need Advil. And so we get there, and I say to Sophia, which balloon do you want? Now, you have to understand, at this point, I've done two memorial services. I've gone shopping. I'm, I'm not going to say how I was, what I was saying on the inside. I was ready, ready. I was hungry to get home. I was hungry to get home. I wanted to put my feet up. I wanted to sit down. I wanted to do the whole 
listen, I would love to help you, but I need to get ready for the ministry. I'm preaching tomorrow. And on our way down nine, which is so fun on a Saturday, Sophia's like, there's the balloon store. So I'm like, we're going, let's go, come on, out, poof, let's go. And we get in there, and the person in front of me is obviously getting balloons for a 6,000-person party. All the balloons are being purchased. So we finally get there, and here's what happens. Keep in mind, I'm hungry to get home. And here's the thing. I don't know how to live hungry. You're also hungry? I don't know how to live hungry. I need, and I'm not just talking about food. I need to satisfy every one of my preferences all of the time. And I fight, and I will even disregard other people to make sure that I can get home when I want to get home and have the meeting end when I want it to end. And here's the other thing. I, I'm hungry to point out irony all the time. So when I hear hypocrisy, like when I hear one of you say something to me here and then I see you say something online, I'm starving to point it out. I can't hold on to. I'm going to quote Chesterton. I cannot compete with the voice of an angel. I cannot handle holding in my body what needs to be said. I, my favorite feast is the last word. My favorite food is telling it like it is. I manipulate the verse, speak the truth in love. I speak the truth in indulgence. So this isn't just about balloons. I hope everybody realizes. I'm just trying to be nice because it's casual Jesus time. It's barbecue Jesus season. This is Jesus at a barbecue. So the lady who's apparently was trying to be nice to Sophia goes, which balloon do you want? And Sophia goes, the rainbow unicorn, the largest balloon they had on the shelf. It was like $13 for air. The woman goes, this one? And Sophia's like, no, not that one. She goes, this one? And now I don't realize she's teasing her. I think she's confused. So I'm like, no, 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 that's Rubble from Paw Patrol, the next one over. That's Zoom, the next one over. Those are minions, up. And she's like, this one? And I'm like, up, to the right, up. It's the only gigantic unicorn with a thing coming out of its head. Pick that one. That's the one she wants. Why are we still doing this? It doesn't take much to do what you're doing. It's the unicorn, the unicorn. Sophia goes, Daddy, she's teasing me. I was hungry to get home, and I completely missed joy, frivolity, laughter, because I wanted to get home. Somebody was being a better parent behind the counter than I was actually with my daughter. What's going on in this text? The first group of people is Jesus' actual natural family. And they want Jesus to be inside. They want Jesus to come home and be just like them. Eat what we eat. Rest when we rest. Come inside. And this is the feasting on best intentions. We have to have a rhythm, listen to me carefully, of fasting and feasting on even our best intentions. 
It is not wrong that they wanted Jesus to come inside and eat. There is such a thing as overwork. For some people, it's alcohol. For some people, it's screens. For others of us, it's overworking that masks the fact that we're insecure and don't want to deal with it. So it's not wrong for somebody to say, Jesus, come inside. You need to eat. What are you doing? People are pulling you in a thousand different directions. But here's what happens. They refused to fast their best intentions. And sometimes best intentions look like good food. And the problem is they indulged it so much that they go from inquiring to seizing. They go from suggesting to demanding. Sometimes when we look into somebody else's life, mom and dad with young kids, I'm talking to you. If you've been married, I'm talking to you. If you have a job, I'm talking to you. If you're frustrated with some things going on in your life and you know they could be better, how many people's life could be better if somebody in your life changed just a little bit? Just a smidgen, a teensy bit. Stop aiming. Why are you looking at me? (laughs) Sophia's like, I know my life could be better if my dad would just let people tease me instead of yelling at them for no reason. How many know somebody you love, their life could be better if they listened to a little bit of the counsel that you have? And I'm being serious. I'm one of them. I see some people that their life could be a little better if they listened to some of the counsel that I have to offer. But there's a point when your good intentions and even saying the right thing, even the thing that a person needs to hear, if we are unwilling to fast even the right advice, we will end up becoming overbearing, controlling, helicopter kind of people. And we will start to get people to change because we've changed them, not because they're choosing to change which means they will need your intensity to maintain that change because it actually hasn't happened in them, it happened to them. This is unbelievably important. When you reach into somebody else's life and control a change in their life, it didn't happen in them, it happened to them. And you will always be forced to be the agent of that change's maintenance. So not only will you now be responsible for your life, but you'll be responsible for the change that you manipulated in somebody else's life. That yoke is not easy, and that burden is not light. And it starts with the best intentions. How about, Jesus, you've been doing a lot of work. Would you like to come in and eat, or would you like us to bring something to you? See, we are in a culture that doesn't understand middle ground anymore. We have all moved to our own side of the line. And I think it's always unbelievable to me that one time Jesus drew a line in the sand. Has anybody ever heard this phrase? Has anybody said it in a fight? You know what? Now you just drew a line in the sand. Jesus is the only one ever to draw a line in the sand. Jesus only ever wrote one thing, and we don't know what it is because he wrote it in the sand. And what St. Augustine says is this. 
Jesus drew a line in the sand, but he purposely drew it in the sand and not on cement because lines are meant to blow away. Lines are meant to blow away. When we draw lines in the sand, it often begins with good intentions. It begins with good intentions. But it becomes good intentions that become obsessive intentions. Good intentions where we realize, I'm not going to be satisfied with the person in my life until they become more like I think they should be. And then you stop enjoying the person and you start enjoying the potential they have to reflect you. And you know what happens then? You actually lose yourself. You lose yourself into that person. And so all of a sudden, two people don't know who they are anymore. Jesus' family is not marked by, we're going to seize him. We're going to tell him what to do. Mary is marked by, do what you came to do. They learned in this moment that you cannot control him. And therefore, you shouldn't control anyone. The right advice given at the wrong time is the wrong advice. Just because you're right doesn't mean it's time to say it. When you say the right thing at the wrong time, you've said something worse than the wrong thing. Listen, when you say the wrong thing and it's received wrongly, that's good. But when you say the right thing at the wrong time, the person you said it to is going to reject the right thing because you said it at the wrong time and might not ever be able to hear that right thing when the right time comes along. Should Jesus eat? Yes. Is it right for family to come and say, I think you're working a little too hard? Yes. But when that good intention becomes a controlling endeavor, you end up seizing, not talking. You end up demanding, not suggesting. And then they call him mad. He's out of his mind. See, when we begin to control people and they no longer follow what we're trying to get them to do, the automatic assumption, and we see this with the Pharisees also, is there must be something wrong with you. You're mad. Jesus, you're a demon. Jesus is like, hmm. Certainly there's nothing wrong with you. It must be me. But this story illustrates two different kinds of people. His natural family and what we would call his ecclesial or his church family. The Pharisees represent the house of Israel. His natural family represents natural family, quite literally. Both groups of people are supposed to be supportive and holding him up and pushing him along on his vocation. But the minute he doesn't do it the way they would, they want to domesticate Jesus. They don't want to have him actually be a revolutionary. They want him to be the best version of what they're trying to be. And sometimes we want people to be the version of ourselves that we failed to be. Oh my goodness, I have so many things to say right now. There are times, I've learned this from parenting. I have criticized my parents my whole life. Don't even act like it. Every kid has spent the majority of their time criticizing their parents. 
and then you become a parent. And you have two choices. And again, I try to use these humorous things to illustrate maybe more deeper things that I'll let the Holy Spirit work on you on. You criticize your parents. You hate me. You don't know how to parent. You don't know what it's like to be a kid. You don't understand this. You don't understand that. You should just listen to me. Obviously, I'm qualified to be telling you, mom and dad, how I should be being raised because I have so much life experience as a 13-year-old. You should be listening to me. I know. I saw TikTok. I know exactly how to parent. Then you become a parent and you realize you have two choices. Choice number one, apologize to your parents and say, I had no idea what I was talking about. And just get the gorilla off your chest. I didn't know. And now that I've been parenting for five minutes, I realize I owe you a lot of meals and a lot of thank yous and a lot of money and a lot of hugs and a lot of thanksgiving, as Elder Paul just said. You did what I couldn't do. You parented me. The other choice is you actually now try to parent better than the critiques you leveled against your parents. And now you're a slave to the critiques you've leveled. And now you can't even be yourself. You have to be the anti-version of the critiques that you leveled. And that will drive your soul into the ground. That's what controlling behavior does. Here's the thing. Jesus wants us to live hungry. He wants us to be cranky because we're hungry. The love of God wants us to be hungry. I should have lived hungry from wanting to get home. My appetite wanted to get home. I should have lived hungry and said, you know what? Even though I want to get home, she's having a good time. We should live hungry from our preferences. We should live hungry from our opinions. There are times to feast on them, and then there are times to be hungry. Please understand, if Jesus said all the things he wanted to say, the New Testament would be as big as the entire Bible. Jesus spent most of his life not saying what should or he wanted to have said. As St. Basil says, Jesus' life was the life of restraint. He lived hungry, not just from food. Man doesn't live by bread alone. I have food that you don't know about. Who gave you food? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus lived hungry from food, but he also lived hungry. Jesus didn't indulge. Jesus didn't eat. Jesus didn't satiate himself with every single opinion he wanted to eat from. He left a lot to the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to live hungry. And the hardest one, living hungry even from our best intentions. Sometimes giving the right advice, telling the person where they should be, how they should be, the way that they should be living looks like a delicious meal that God is saying, fast from that today. Don't eat from that right now. They're not ready to hear, and I want them to be hungry. Sometimes you need to fast long enough for somebody else to get hungry. And then when you offer the food, they'll be willing to eat it. But we start to give people advice because we're hungry to give it, but they're not hungry to have it. Then the Pharisees come along. And as Christians, I just want us to, when you read about the Pharisees, please do not read about the Pharisees like they're unbelievers. 
That is not the way the Gospels were meant to be read. The Pharisees do not represent unbelievers. The Pharisees and the stories about them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are a gift to the church to show the church the capacity we have to turn grace into law. So you actually should see them as believers who are taking grace and turning it into law. You ready? For Pharisees, method is more important than mercy. The way you should do something is more important than the goodness that God wants to do in your life. When we become Pharisees, we see the way people do things, and we become more obsessed with the way somebody's doing something than the mercy and the grace God wants to show them. So the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they don't like what he's doing because it's taking the attention off of them, and he's not doing it the way that they were taught and teach how to do it. They teach you rest on the Sabbath. Jesus is running around telling people to take up their mats and go home every single Sabbath. Jesus is sweating. Jesus is working. He's breaking Sabbath law. And instead of saying, why are you doing this? Can we sit down and talk? Can we have a conversation? Because everything I've ever learned says that what you're doing is wrong, Jesus. And Jesus would have sat down and said, yeah, you're right. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. But they don't do that. They don't sit down and say, can you explain to us why this is happening? They immediately deduce that he must be Satan. Because when we treat, I don't know, mask wearing and not mask wearing, it's a real serious issue compared to all the other issues that are going on. People are dying of hunger, and America's freaking out about who should and shouldn't be wearing a mask. Shame on us. Anyway, I will get off that soapbox. Hurt my foot. We get so on one side of the argument that we forget it's people on the other side of the argument. We just see evil on the other side of the argument. That is not how Christians should be living or acting at all, ever. Ever. The minute the person who doesn't live like you, the minute the person who doesn't have the lifestyle you think they should have, the minute a person claims to be a Christian but is living a different kind of way and it ruffles all of your feathers, the minute these things happen and you stop seeing a person and start seeing evil, you are more wrong than any critique you could ever level against them. People are on both sides of the coin. People are on both sides of the argument. The Pharisees needed to feast on unlearning. They needed to feast on unlearning. I know that sounds confusing. They needed to indulge in unlearning and relearning because none of us are Jesus. Do me a favor, please. Can everybody look around the room for a second? Do you see somebody besides Stuart Walker who's almost exactly like Jesus? Stuart and Ian are the closest people, both annoying for it. What are you doing back there? <laughs> that was terrifying. Like, I call you Jesus, and you're just like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> that was awesome. 
none of us are there. None of us will ever be there. None of us should ever want to be there. Therefore, we should always be learning, unlearning, and relearning. So the first group of people, they indulged in the best intentions. The Pharisees were indulging in what I call previous intentions. They learned something one way, one time, and spent the rest of their lives never unlearning, just defending the first way they ever learned something. That is the seedbed for every ism that has ever taken place. When people only live off of the first way they learn something, we become the most dangerous ism-creating kinds of people. The mark of a Christian is a person who's always unlearning and always relearning. Here's the reality. Maybe write this down. Disagreement for a Christian should never lead to rejection. Disagreement is not divorce. Disagreement is not divorce. Refusing to unlearn is. Disagreement will not ruin mine and Jacqueline's marriage. Because if it would, it would have ruined it 15 minutes after we said, I do. What will ruin our marriage is if either of us decided in one day, I have nothing more to learn from that person. That will destroy it. Not disagreement. A refusal to listen, unlearn, and relearn. When we decide that we've learned what we need to learn about any subject. You could pick a subject. We could talk about salvation. We could talk about every kind of moral issue, every kind of hot button issue. I promise if we had 15 Wednesday nights in a row and we went down the things that we all think are most obvious, I would do three days of homework to show us that throughout church history, none of these things that we think are so obvious really are so obvious. And when your theology or when your view on the social world or your view on racism or your view on the pandemic is, if you're able to explain it in simple sentences, it's not good enough and it's hurting you. If you can express what you believe on issues that involve people and say it in a truncated, quick way in 140 characters or less... It's not deep enough. If somebody jumps in that pool, they're going to bang their face on the ground thinking it was 10 feet deep when it was 4 inches deep. We Christians, we should be people where when somebody says, hey, what do you think about this community of people? Or what do you think about this hot button issue? We should have to say, I don't want to answer that here unless you have an hour. Because when we're talking about people, it is more complicated than statements and stances. It just is. Listen, I value every one of you enough to never answer a question about who you are quickly because you're so much more valuable than a two-sentence answer. This family got divorced. This family got divorced. This family got divorced. Pastor, they're all wrong, right? No. Well, what is it? Well, we got to spend time looking at each one because people are involved. And there's no systems that can encapsulate a person. When systems encapsulate and describe people, you get isms. 
That's what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. They're not living hungry. They want, they are feasting off of their opinion about Jesus and calling him evil because the only way they can get him into the box they want to put him in is to make him the kind of person they shouldn't be around. And unfortunately, we've done that to large groups of people as the church as well. We disagree, and we don't know how to live in disagreement, so we find ways to rationalize not having to live with the person at all. How is it that Jesus can recline at the table with tax collectors and sinners and Judas and get criticized for it? What makes him so comfortable not needing to say, you're wrong for this and you're wrong for that and you need to change this and you need to change that? Well, didn't he tell the rich young ruler that he should sell all that he had? Yes, Steph, he did, but only after the rich young ruler said to him, what do I lack? He didn't just go up to him and offer his opinion. The Son of God did not just offer his opinion. He waited until he was asked for it. We don't live hungry at home. We don't live hungry with our kids, with our spouse, with our church. We desire our opinion the way that I desire a personal pizza from Antonella's in about an hour and a half. I'll post about it. Trust me. It's delicious. But that's, we crave giving our opinion. We crave, here's the thing, we crave giving our opinion so much that we would rather sever a relationship if it meant they know where we stand. Nothing can survive. We need to be better than that. So I conclude with this. It's 11.20. I got like four hours left. This one service thing is fantastical. Everyone's like, oh, God. Here's the funny thing. I called the one and only Dr. Chris Green, and I said, Chris, I actually called him this morning, which is a dangerous game to play when your sermon's done. And you're like, hey, Chris, I have a question about my sermon. Because Chris doesn't like to live hungry from critiquing people. I said, Chris, I realized something in, in the gospel today. I said, I'm going to call out Jesus' family and say that they were controlling. Chris is like, okay, that's what it says. I'm like, all right, don't, don't act like that, Chris. I said, then I'm going to call out the Pharisees for calling Jesus evil. And Chris is like, yeah. So, but here's the thing. I'm going to call out more people than Jesus did in the story. Jesus didn't call anybody out in the story. Contrary to what people think, Jesus didn't call out the Pharisees for having the unpardonable sin. He said, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He didn't say you are. He never told them that they're now unable to ever be forgiven. He just said if. He never called them out. He never told them they were wrong. Watch this. He never told them they were wrong for calling him a demon. You know what he said, Tim? Tim, call me a demon. I'm a demon, Tim. Jesus said, if you're right and Satan has just cast out Satan, then the kingdom of God is coming anyway because the kingdom of Satan is dying anyway. He said, even if you're right, you still are wrong 
Because if Satan's casting out Satan, then the kingdom of darkness is falling anyway. He didn't say you shouldn't be saying that to me. He said, look at your own evidence. If you're right about that, we're still in the same place. But he never said they were on. So I'm like, Chris, what do I do? I can't call people out if Jesus didn't. And Chris like, sure you can. I'm like, I love you, man. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. I'm praying for your sermon today, too. It's always good talking to you. He's in, he's in Tulsa, so it's an hour earlier. So he's got time. So I was like, thank you, Chris. How does God fast from his opinion? In the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely, say it again, Adam and Eve, when you eat this fruit, you will surely They eat the fruit. Does God kill them? Does he? Does he separate himself from them? We have various opinions. They eat. What's God's opinion? Did they do something wrong? What does he do? He goes to them. And he says... How dare you? I've given you everything. And this is the thanks I get? Every tree. Every tree. Every one. Look at them all. You go to this one. Wait, no, this is what I say to her. I'm sorry. Every toy I said you can play with except for dad's thing. And you broke that. I'm just kidding. You didn't. Today. He goes to them and says, where are you? And they're like, we're hiding. He's like, oh, why? Oh, because we messed up. And now we're naked. Well, who told you you were naked? We looked at each other and saw something that we hadn't seen before. New things. God. So we hid. Like, well, who told you to eat from this? Well, she did. He's like, oh, okay. Who made you do it? Uh, the serpent. He's like, all right, well, we're going to have problems forever. That's a whole different thing. And then he says, here's what we're going to do. Gather your things. We have to leave the garden. Do Adam and Eve leave the garden? But you know who else leaves the garden too? God. Genesis 4, all the way to the back flap of your Bible. God is not in the garden. He's where we are outside of it. The whole rest of the Bible. Sin didn't separate Adam and Eve from God. It drew God in to be Savior, to be Father, to be Redeemer. Did God have an opinion about it? Yeah. He fasted what he could have done and been right in doing so that we could feast on what he was fasting. He jumps to the other side of the line. Like Ian, he's just in both places. You're like, wait a minute. 
I'm going to come over here. These people seem to be right. What's up, Jesus? Nice, nice. Man, man, yes. Oh, no, Jesus is over here too. This is what he does. Somebody yesterday said Jesus knocks on doors of rooms that he's already in. <laughs> Revelation 4, he's knocking. John 20, he's in the room that he's knocking on. Love permeates all possibilities. There's this famous story of a monastery where the brothers in the monastery point out that one of the new converts is committing sins that are just breaking down the whole ethos of the, of the monastery. And they say to, the, to their bishop, Bishop, he needs to be out of here. Based on our bylaws, based on our doctrine, based on our stances, he needs to be out of here. And you need to kick him out of here. And the Bible even says, if somebody claims to be a Christian and is doing this, kick them out. He says, all right. Tonight we're going to have a ceremony to remove him from our midst. And so that night they all got there. And this dude who's been sinning has his bags packed. And the bishop shows up. And the bishop's got his bags packed too. He says, we're going to ask him to leave. But I'm leaving with him. And they said, well, we want you to stay. He said, then he stays. It's almost like a modern version of he who is without sin. Let's deal with our opinions that way. Don't offer every single one. And when you do, ask yourself, is the person I'm offering it to ready, hungry? Is there something I need to relearn here? Am I just defending echoes of what I've learned in the past? Am I being controlling? And then if you say right now, John and Steph, everybody, you guys can come up here. If you say right now, I've done this. I think, Pastor, I'm hearing you, and it's funny and all, but I think I've actually possibly hurt relationships by being more hungry for my opinion than I am for the people I'm actually around. I actually care more about people and beliefs than I do about the people themselves. I care more about somebody being correct than I do about them. I've presented myself as a Christian that is polarizing, one-sided, all about belief, all about stance, and not about the kind of God who's willing to leave a garden with people who have walked all over him to make sure that as they leave the garden, he can get them back into it differently. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Let's really honestly not just let a sermon like this just flip by, but let's really, really take a ledger. Are we willing to live hungry? So maybe somebody has offended you. Maybe somebody has done something you don't like. Maybe Salem, maybe the way we do things, you're just not a particular fan of it. Whatever it is, I'll, I'll fall on my sword here to make it easy. But maybe there's many other kinds of places where you're just seeing things you don't agree with. And it gnaws at you. And it keeps you up. And it's really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. 
but because you think it's wrong or because you think they're wrong or because they don't know that they're wrong and they are. You just can't fully be you until you let them know. I promise you, God has more freedom for you than that. But we've all done it. I've made a commitment since July 9th of 2017. I will never preach a sermon that I didn't have to repent of myself. I will only preach from the well of God's forgiveness that he's dropped in my life. Because this is what Jesus does. He says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you won't have forgiveness. And what does he mean by that very cryptic phrase? Jesus means that the best way that we can heal the world is for us to be forgiven, not to get other people to repent. The world changes most when I repent, not when I get you to. And Jesus is saying the kind of person who's always accusatory, who's always seeing evil and not a person, who's even willing to blaspheme the Son of God himself, they won't have forgiveness because they're not looking for it because they don't think they need it. They'll never go to the bank and make the withdrawal of forgiveness of the money that God put into the account because they think they have enough in their wallet. Let's not be that way. I'm so glad Jesus said if. Because so far I haven't called him a demon. The world changes. Not when the groups that you think need to change, change. Not when the politics hit your side of the coin. There are far too many people so happy because one dude got in and so distraught because that dude got in. And I'm telling both, you're way too happy and you're way too upset because he's just not that big of a deal and neither has any of the other 45 or 46 either. We cannot rise and fall when we see things we agree, agree with, we rise. And when we see things in our own life or on TV or in our church that we disagree with, we fall and we can't be ourselves unless we point it out. And listen, if you know me, you know I'm preaching to myself. Remember an argument we got into on New Year's Eve? We won't talk about it. A couple of people who just don't like to say, let's stop. I'm trying to be as real as I possibly can. Like, we need time in the Holy Spirit. Let's not be the people who just settle in a group that agrees with us, on websites that agree with us, in communities that agree with us, with people that we get close to only if they agree. Let's not do that. Let's be all things to all people Let's have other churches criticize us the way that the Pharisees criticized Jesus. Who does Salem think they are associating with people like that? Here's who we think we are. We're Salem Tabernacle. God's peace on the move. That's who we are. So as the worship team ministers to us before we come to the table, lock yourself in. Say, Lord Lord, where do I need to fast even my best intentions? 
And where do I need to unlearn and relearn some things so I don't spend, I, so I can learn to be a lover and not a gatekeeper? Let's just take some time. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.